and we're going to start Acts 16, verse 11, and go to 33. From Troas, we, and we is Paul and Silas and probably Luke, the author of the book of Acts, put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman of the, from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods, After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. You may be seated. This is God's word. Father God, open this amazing passage. uh, Open it up to our hearts. uh, Help us to hear the word that you have for us today. Um, Thank you for this community. Um, God, I pray that you would use work in spite of all my limitations, and God, that you would speak to this community, to each one of us here, in the way that we need to hear your voice today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to start this message just by sharing a little bit about what struck me 
as I was preparing. And because this message, this passage includes three stories of people that are encountering God for the first time and making a decision uh, to decide to become followers of Jesus, it brought me back to uh, when I was making that decision uh, for myself. And it was actually uh, in high school. I, our family didn't grow up um, going to church very often. And so my sister had invited me. I started to attend. And one of the things that I remember is that when I started going to church, um, I was actually very uncomfortable and felt like being a part of the church community was kind of awkward and I felt like I didn't fit in. And uh, I think there are a couple reasons for this. Uh, For one thing, it can be awkward and uncomfortable being a part of a community where everyone believes or seems to believe in one thing. And if you just don't believe in that, it can feel like, well, I kind of feel like an outsider. And to be honest, it didn't take very much for me to feel like that. I was just coming out of middle school. I had a mouthful of braces. Um, I had these really thick plastic frames that somehow I decided were um, the right style for me. They weren't like the black frames that people wear today. They weren't stylish at all. Um, and so there were a variety of environments that I felt like an outsider. And, you know, the places where I felt in, uh, where I felt like I fit in, there were the environments where I knew um, kind of what it looked like to perform and what it looked like uh, to belong in those environments. So, um, you know, the environments, I was a pretty good volleyball player. I played for my high school volleyball team. And so I knew what good performance looked like in that area. I had friends there. Um, That's where I felt comfortable. And as stereotypical as it is, I was a a pretty good mathematician. Uh, When I was on the math club, I knew, uh, you know, what good performance looked like. Uh, I knew what it meant to fit in. I had a community there. But when I was a part of a church community and, you know, was just visiting and trying to figure out what I believed, uh, I didn't really know what it meant to perform well in that environment. And, um, and so it wasn't an easy environment for me to feel comfortable. And one of the questions that kind of came uh, implicitly uh, because of that was, um, you know, I basically asked, is there, within the sphere of God's love, is there a place for me? Um, the kind of relationship that I see other people having or claiming to have, the, uh, the way that God is present and active in other people's lives, am I invited into that or am I just an outsider? And uh, one of the reasons why I thought um, that this is a helpful thing to think about is that I know that in a community like this, there are actually always people in our community who may feel like they're in the same place. You may be here, and uh, you may not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here uh, because you're, someone made you come, uh, maybe a spouse or a significant other, or maybe you're just here trying to figure out what you believe, and, um, and it may feel ex- the exact same way. You know, I'm in a place where the language that people use, the songs that people sing, the assumptions that people have, I just don't share them, and it can feel a little bit awkward or uncomfortable. 
And I just want to say, you know, one of the things that we try very hard to do here at New Beginnings is to make sure that this is a safe place for everyone, no matter where you're at, on your spiritual journey, and we're all on a journey with God, um, you know, somewhere along the line. We want to make sure that this is a place where everyone can feel safe and figure out what is God saying to me? What might my next step look like? So I want you to know that no matter where you're at, you are welcome here, and we are glad that you're here. Absolutely, yes. Um, But even for, you know, those of us who would say, you know, we're followers of Jesus, there are times when we're in a church community and we might wonder, do I really fit in here? And the things that I see in other people's lives, am I included um, in the sphere of God's love? And is the way that God works in other people's lives, does that apply to me also? And so sometimes that might happen because we come into a place like this And we know what's going on inside of our own lives. We know the things that we're struggling with, the things that we're wrestling with, maybe the things that we're doubting, maybe it's patterns in our life that we're trying to overcome. And we come into a place like this, and everyone looks so well put together. Everyone looks like their lives are going well, things are going great. And we might wonder, you know, am I inside the sphere of God's love? Um, The way that God works in other people's lives, the way he transforms other people, does that also apply to me? And in another context, we might see the way that God is working in the lives of other people, and we might actually wonder, you know, and think, the way that I see God working in other people's lives, I wish God would work in my life also. So, We might see someone else healed of an illness, and there might be an illness that we've been wrestling with that isn't being healed, and we might think, why is God's love seemingly extended to that person, but the transformation, the healing that I'm longing for doesn't seem to be happening? Or it might be that, you know, someone gets a great new job, and we've been going through an extended season of unemployment. Or, you know, someone enters into an exciting relationship or gets married, And we're asking God and crying out, you know, we have this need in our hearts. And how come the things that God is providing and transforming for other people, it doesn't seem to be coming over into our lives? Are we within the sphere of God's love? Does the way that God work for transformation and and to bless other people, does that include us? And so... Um, One of the things that I appreciate about this passage is that as we look at these three stories in Acts 16, and as we look at them individually, and as we look at them together, they give us a bigger picture of what the sphere of God's love looks like, and who God invites in to be transformed as he extends relationship to people. And, um, you know, this passage is one that I've appreciated for a long time. Many years back, I came across a sermon um, about this passage from one of my favorite preachers, uh, Tim Keller, uh, from Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. And so uh, some of his thinking and insight is also woven into uh, this message, and I hope it's a blessing also. So um, let's start by looking at each of these three accounts, and we'll start with Lydia. She comes first. Her story is in verses 13 to 15, and Lydia is someone who would fit right in to Silicon Valley. She's a wealthy businesswoman. She deals in purple cloth, which was one of the ultimate luxury items of the day. Maybe you've always wondered, you know, 
Why is royalty associated with the color purple? Well, it stretches back all the way to antiquity. And uh, one of the most interesting science facts that um, I find fascinating about scripture is that the reason why purple cloth was so expensive was that the dye was so hard to obtain because it came from these sea snails that were found in the eastern Mediterranean. And in order to get enough dye to be able to dye cloth uh, purple, you had to collect tens of thousands of these sea snails, and the dye was found in the mucus of these sea snails. So I share this just in case, you know, anyone is feeling dissatisfied with your job. And I just got to say, you know, it could be worse. You could have been born in a time where your job was to extract mucus from these snails so that you could dye, you know, this cloth purple for really wealthy people. Um, So it's not so bad, right? Um, And uh, so Lydia was a merchant of this very expensive cloth. Uh, She was from a city called Thyatira. And we find her here in this passage in Philippi, probably doing business. And it's clear from this passage, she has a household in Philippi. She probably has a household in Thyatira, where her home base was. So it's like, you know, Lydia in our day is, you know, the founder of this hot fashion startup. And she's got a home in New York and a home in LA, maybe a home in the Bay Area. And she's got it all going on, right? So on top of all that, Uh, The passage says that she um, is a worshiper of God. Um, And in this passage, that means something in particular. It means that um, she wasn't Jewish. She was a Gentile, but she was a Gentile that worshipped the God of the Hebrew Bible. And so she would have studied the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, She would have tried to follow the Mosaic law. It basically meant that she was a religious woman who took religion seriously, and she was trying to figure out the best way to live. And so, basically, this picture of Lydia is that she's a moral, successful person, and yet, when she has this interaction with Paul, she encounters Paul, and Paul shares the gospel with her. She share, he shares the message of who Jesus is, And when she hears it, her life is changed and transformed. She opens her heart and she finds that the message of the gospel is something that she desperately needs. And she responds to it. So the key of what we learn from Lydia is that unlike what we might sometimes think, good people, religious people, desperately need the gospel. And there are religious people um, all over the place. In every world religion, there are religious people inside Christian churches. There are religious people with religious mindsets that might not be a part of organized religion. But in general, religious people tend to have a common way of thinking. And that's if I do the right things, if I live the right way, if I follow the right rules, if I live up to the right standard, whether it's a spiritual standard, whether it's some other kind of performance standard, then I'm a worthy person. I deserve good things. Then God or the universe or karma owes me the good life that I've earned. 
And so that might involve, you know, getting the right job, um, finding the right person, uh, having perfect kids, whatever it is that exemplifies, you know, the good life for you. That's what a religious person would feel like they've earned by doing things the right way. So, of course, if for people who have a religious mindset, uh, if you're living that way and good things start happening to you, you feel very good about yourself. You start patting yourself on the back. You feel like, well, of course these great things are happening to me. I've worked so hard and I've earned them. And if you look around and see other people who are struggling, not doing so well, you don't tend to be very sympathetic because you feel like, well, clearly you didn't live up to the same standard that I lived up to. And of course, if you have a religious mindset and circumstances don't turn out so well, then you either feel angry or depressed. Because, um, you know, if you feel like, well, I worked as hard as I could and I did everything that I'm supposed to do and life still doesn't turn out well, then you can be angry at God or the universe for not holding up their end of the bargain to provide the good things that you deserve. Life isn't fair. Or you can just feel like, I, I must have messed up somewhere along the line and now I deserve um, all these um, you know, all the suffering and the poor circumstances that have come my way. So when we have a religious mindset, and it's easy for a lot of us to fall into this mindset because a lot of the world kind of pushes us into this way of being. God can be useful to get, help us get what we want. God can be respected. God can even be worshipped. But God is never intimate. God will never be the lover of our soul. And this is why religious people need the gospel. Because the gospel, the fundamental message of Christianity, completely reverses the religious mindset and turns it upside down. You know, on the one hand, the gospel will laugh at the idea that we can earn or, earn or deserve anything. The gospel will declare you know, we are far more broken and messed up and self-serving and self-rationalizing than we can possibly imagine. But at the very same time, the gospel will declare that we are more loved and more accepted and more forgiven than we can possibly imagine. That before we try to do anything good or earn brownie points from God because of our good behavior, the gospel says God already loves us. God already offers us his free gift of grace and salvation, not because of what we've done or what we deserve, but simply because of what God has already done through Jesus on the cross because of his extraordinary love for us. And so where religion is constantly telling us, do this, do this, do this, the gospel says, it's already all done. God already loves you. And the gospel, when we hear this and understand it, it transforms our lives from the inside out. We don't have to start with behavior and performance and trying to look good for other people or for God, but we can start by entering into God's love to know that he unconditionally loves us and accepts us and forgives us. And as we lean into that relationship with our loving Father, then we're truly free to live 
in a way that reflects that relationship. So you might say, well, how do I know that this is really true? And I would argue that God has actually woven this dynamic even into all of our human relationships. That the best relationships that we have are the ones where we know that we are loved and accepted and embraced just for who we are. Not because of how well we perform or how much money we earn or, you know, how funny we are or, you know, how nice we can make things for another person. Just for who we are. And when we experience a relationship like that where we are loved unconditionally, it's easy, it's a joy, it's a delight to respond in turn um, and to care for and love the other person in return. And the worst relationships that we have in our life are the ones where we feel like we're constantly tap dancing for someone else's benefit. We're trying to prove that we're worthy of being loved. We're trying to prove that, you know, we're worthy of someone's high opinion or acceptance. And if we have too many relationships like that in our lives, it's like poison for our soul, right? So we know this. We know what kinds of relationships we need to thrive and we find the ultimate reflection of that in, the, in our relationship with God, in the relationship that God offers. So when we look at Lydia, we see the truth that God desires to transform religious people through the message of the gospel. When we hear the message of the gospel, it clicks for us because we recognize this is what I've been missing, just like Lydia. And we can recognize the unconditional love that God offers is exactly what I need. And something will leap inside of our heart and we say yes to that. And it can transform our lives. But the transformation that God offers isn't limited to religious folks. It's also offered to folks that are on the other end of the spectrum. And so that's what we see in the next story with the slave girl. The slave girl has no financial resources. Uh, She's uh, not a religious seeker at all. In fact, she's a slave. She's the property of human masters. And instead of being a spiritual seeker and a moral person, she's spiritually and emotionally oppressed. She's demon-possessed. And what we find in her account is that not only does God transform religious folks, God also transforms the oppressed, the wounded, because God has the power to heal and to deliver and to set free. And so what we see for the slave girl um, is that she doesn't need someone to tell her the gospel message. In fact, of all the people in this passage, she actually knows the most. In her condition, she's the one that's following Paul and Silas around saying, these are the servants of the most high God telling you how to be saved. And um, Paul and Silas aren't really looking for this kind of entourage. Um, And so, you know, she's kind of getting in the way and and a distraction. And so ultimately, they look at her and they realize it's not like she needs the gospel explained to her in the way that Lydia did. What this girl needs is an, an encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit to free her and to deliver her. And so Paul looks at her and speaks to the spirit that is within her and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And in that moment, she is set free. 
So one of the things that I love about this community, and I know um, as someone who's been a part of this community for years, is that there are scores of people here that would say, you know, part of my story of walking with God has examples that are similar to what this slave girl experienced. That maybe it was substance abuse or addiction, or maybe there was an emotional stronghold or a pattern of behavior that I was struggling with. And I was at the end of my rope. I had tried for years to overcome it on my own. And it was only when God intervened and stepped in through the power of his Holy Spirit that I was able to experience freedom. And I know there are stories um, you know, among our leaders, on our staff, and I would count myself in that story too. You know, When I came um, and started to follow Jesus, initially it was more of a Lydia thing. It was more, you know, I, was, I had questions in my head about, you know, is the resurrection true? I read all these books. There was a part of the gospel message and the unconditional love that God offered that spoke to me, and I made a decision to follow Jesus. But very shortly after that, I realized that there were all these patterns in my life that had built up through adolescence, and they were causing feelings of guilt and shame in me. I was hiding things that I was doing on my own from other people because I didn't want them to know. I felt like they would look down on me. And I was trying as hard as I could in my own time to break these patterns of behavior and to change the way that I was living. And I realized that I couldn't do it on my own. The harder I tried, the more I failed. And it was only a season of my life after years of trying that God broke through into my life in a way that I never would have expected, I never imagined. But in a, in a summer where um, I happened to have more time to pray, I hiked up into you know, the, the foothills by here. I had these seasons of prayer and um, had these ways that God was speaking to me that in a span of just a couple of weeks, I experienced a freedom that I had never felt before and God delivered me of things that I was oppressed by for years. And that's a part, that transformation is a part of the story that I carry with me as I walk with God. And I know that there are countless other stories that are just like that. But one of the things that stands out to me in this passage is that, and it, it's interesting, there's no particular explanation, is that the passage actually says that Paul and Silas had this girl following them for many days. And it stands out to me that, you know, if this girl was following them for many days, why didn't they heal her on the first day? Like, why didn't, if you saw someone who was spiritually oppressed, wouldn't you feel led to speak into her life? And they clearly, you know, they were able to, um, to use the name of Jesus with authority and to deliver her. And so why was it many days before they were able, before they chose to do that? And there's no clear explanation in this passage. And part of the reason why it speaks to me is that I know that um, just like there are scores of people who would say that deliverance is a part of their transformation story with God, there are also, scores of people that are in that excruciatingly difficult period of waiting for deliverance. 
that there's something that you're struggling with right now, there's a stronghold in your life, or there's a way that you're crying out for a loved one, and it is so painful to not know why God does not intervene sooner. And there's often no specific reason that God will give us for it. But the only thing that I can share from my story is that one of the things that I learned in the season of waiting, when I was trying on my own strength and God was not responding, is that God's grace and the sphere of his love, the depth of his acceptance and forgiveness is far greater than we can imagine. And it's actually in those seasons of waiting that we realize that there might be an issue that we're focused on, that we feel like, you know, if only God would deliver me from this, or if only God would free me from this, then I would be ready to live right for God. Then I would experience a fuller measure of his love. And it's actually in the season of waiting that God teaches us, you know, my love is there all along. My grace, my acceptance, my embrace of you is actually in the midst of the struggle that you don't have to get cleaned up for me to love you and to come into your life. I will come alongside you just where you are. My grace is sufficient for you before and after I show my power to heal you and set you free. And so it, brought, it can broaden our view of the depth and expanse of God's love. And I think that's why, as a community, we can put all of our stories and our prayers together and to know that God is a God who can deliver and set free. So, with Lydia, we learned that God transforms those who are religious through the message of the gospel. Uh, with the slave girl, we learned that God transforms those who are wounded and oppressed through the power of God to heal and to set free. And then we get, you know, two women, then we get to the Philippian jailer, the man. Okay, so the good news is that in this passage, even men can be saved. Ah, it's good news. Um, and the man is actually, this jailer is actually quite different from Lydia and the slave girl because he really has no spiritual component at all going on in his life. Uh, he's a very practical man. Uh, we see in the way that he treats Paul and Silas as they're thrown in jail he could really care less about their suffering. Um, he was probably, almost certainly, a Roman soldier, so he kind of has a soldier's view of the world. So he wants to take care of himself. Uh, after work, he wants to grab a drink, watch the game. He wants to live life on his terms. He's not super idealistic, doesn't want to change the world, just wants a good life for himself. And in this passage, we see the jailer transformed but it isn't because Paul and Silas preach a great message about the gospel. And it isn't because he has this issue that he's struggling with internally and God delivers him from it. The way that the jailer is transformed is because he sees a radical grace and generosity at work in Paul and Silas as God's people. And he, he sees radical grace at work in a way that he's never seen before, that he can't explain, and he realizes that there's a better way to live that he desperately wants. And so, two specific things that he sees, that he witnesses. The first thing is he sees Paul and Silas react to suffering 
in a way that he's never seen before. So Paul and Silas, the passage says that they're severely flogged and beaten by a rod. So they show up in jail. They have wounds over their body. They're probably bloody. The jailer could care less. He knows they're hurting, but his only responsibility is to make sure that they don't escape. So he throws them into jail. And that night, he hears them, but they're not cursing out the jailer because the jailer has been so cruel to them. They're not crying out in fear, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. They are praying and praising God in the midst of their suffering, and the jailer has never seen anything like it. So one of the things that is clear Um, So remember what we talked about with Lydia? It's clear that Paul and Silas are not just merely religious, right? If they were, if they only had a religious mindset, they would either be furious at God, right? Like, we're trying to serve you, and you let us get beaten and thrown in jail. How is that fair? Or they would be, you know, totally depressed. Like, we must have screwed up and missed the boat somewhere because, you know, what did we do to deserve this? But instead, Paul and Silas have been transformed by the gospel. They know that God's love for them is already secure, that they've already received the full unconditional love of God. So no matter what's going on in their circumstances, that's not a judgment that means that God's love has been taken away from them. And because they're secure in that knowledge, and they know God's power to deliver if he so chooses, because they, they were the, the medium through which the slave girl was set free, they're able to trust God and to worship and to have joy even in the midst of their suffering. So the jailer sees this, and then something even more incredible happens. There's a huge earthquake The foundations are shaken. All the doors are flung open. Their chains are broken. And if you're Paul and Silas, you're probably thinking, that's what I'm talking about, right? This is deliverance. This is exactly what we were expecting. And they were free to be able to just exit the jail. But they stayed. And the reason they stayed is that they knew that if they escaped, they would escape at the cost of the jailer's life, right? This is the way that it worked in Roman times. You were responsible for guarding the prisoner. If the prisoner escapes, then it's on you. Your life is forfeit. You're going to die. And that's why the jailer, when he saw the doors open, he drew his sword and he was ready to kill himself because he knew that he was a dead man. But Paul and Silas stopped the jailer. They say, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And Paul and Silas live out the radical grace of the gospel. They didn't save their own lives from this temporary prison that they were in at the expense of the jailer's life because they knew they had already been saved by God for all eternity at the expense of Jesus' life. The unconditional eternal love and salvation that they already received allowed them to extend radical and unconditional grace to this jailer who didn't deserve it at all. And when the jailer witnessed that and experienced that radical grace from God's people, he knew that there was a different way to live, that there was something that he was missing, that there 
was something real and the something real about God that was active in the world that he had never considered but he desperately wanted to have. And in that moment, in that night, he was transformed. So we see through Lydia, God transforms religious people through the message of the gospel, through the slave girl that God transforms wounded and oppressed people through the power of God to heal and to set free. And in this jailer, God transforms secular, ordinary people through the radical grace of God's people. Each of these stories teaches us something in particular, but when we put them together, that's when we see two overarching truths. So the first truth that comes to the surface is that God's transformation is available to everyone, to everyone. And, you know, when I prepare for this message, it made me think about all these different kinds of people who see life through the lens of their faith and through the, um, through the context of the grace that is found in Jesus. And it made me remember that, you know, last year, uh, many of us from this church, our staff, and uh, a lot of our key leaders attended this conference called the Global Leadership Summit that is uh, put on by a Willow Creek Community Church. And one of the speakers at that conference was Melinda Gates, the quite possibly the wealthiest woman on the planet. So she started the Gates Foundation with her husband, Bill, the founder of Microsoft. And she described the driving force behind the foundation as the things that she learned growing up as a Catholic in Catholic school. Um, her ongoing prayer and devotional life that is centered on the person of Jesus and how Jesus responds to the poor and those that are outside um, of, the, of the community. Um, and how that passion and her, her own sense of faith is what motivated her to start the Gates Foundation that now gives away over $3 billion a year for the care of the global poor. And the core value of the Gates Foundation, that um, every life has equal value, is a conviction that flows straight from her faith as a follower of Jesus. And so that reminded me, wow, God is continuing to transform modern-day Lydia's and use them to transform the world. And then I came across a totally different story, and it's about um, a woman who became a viral social media phenomenon when she made the following Facebook post online. And I know uh, the, the text is too small to read, so I'll read it for you. It says, Today marks four years clean from heroin and meth. The top left is me in a full-blown addiction. I was a terrible IV user and, like most, progressively got worse. The bottom left is me the day I was arrested, December 6, 2012, and coincidentally the day I finally surrendered to God. With the help of God, I am completing my BA and hope to one day be a prison minister. I have a beautiful 18-month-old, and every day I thank God that I am not where I once was. Sobriety is possible. Amen. And in a follow-up post, she wrote, Just to be clear, I did not get here without the love and support of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the reality is we may or may not identify directly with Melinda Gates or with Deja Hall. But the point is 
the church is a place where everyone is welcome. And one of the powerful things about our community of new beginnings that I appreciate so much is that we demonstrate this truth in a unique and powerful way. Because inside of our community, we have Melinda sitting next to Deja's. We have Lydia's and slave girls and Philippian jailers and people from all sorts of different backgrounds with different stories and different testimonies about the way that God has worked transformation in our lives. And no two stories are exactly the same, but it's the same God that is working worked in our lives in exactly the way that we've needed in order to respond to him, to experience transformation, and to allow God to use us to transform others. And the reality is, it's not like we're all a type, you know, that there's some Lydia's and some slave girls and some Philippian jailers. The reality is, as I look at my life, is that in different seasons of our, li- of our lives, we're all three of them. That there might be seasons where we desperately just need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and that we are unconditionally loved. And, and that's what we need to be able to take a step forward and stop feeling oppressed by, you know, this performance mentality that everything has to look perfect and be, uh, you know, this perfect image for other people or for God. And then there might be other seasons of our life where we're dealing with an affliction or a struggle or an addiction that we can't overcome on our own. And we need to cry out to God to be a healer and a deliverer for us. And we need to know that just like the slave girl, God has the same power today to intervene in our lives and set us free. And then there may be other days where we're just feeling stuck in a rut, we're tired, we're exhausted, and all we want to do is care about ourselves. And we actually need to see the radical grace and generosity at work in other people in our community to be reminded that God's purpose and plan for our lives is bigger than ourselves, and we need to be inspired by the incredible grace we see at work in other people to break out of that rut and to follow God with renewed energy and strength. It's all of these stories tied together that remind us that God's transformation is for everyone at all times. He loves us. We're inside the sphere of his love. The very last thing that I want to highlight before I finish. So the last truth that that we see when these stories come together is that God's grace is bigger than we can imagine, and he uses all of us in his story. So one of the things, you know, we've looked at a lot of different stories in Acts, and one of the things that you see in the book of Acts, if you read the whole thing together, is that one of the tensions in this book is the, is the struggle between Jews and Gentiles. And this question that the early church was asking, what kind of person do you have to be in order to be loved and accepted by God. And it was a very understandable question because Jesus was Jewish and all the first disciples were Jewish. And so the early church started in Jerusalem and everyone who was following Jesus was Jewish. And so they assumed if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to become Jewish first. But the message of the gospel started getting out and Gentiles started responding and they didn't really want to be circumcised and do some other stuff. And so this question arose. And one of the reasons why it was so hard to answer this question is because there was this prayer 
that Jewish men would pray every morning around the time of Paul. It was a part of their morning devotionals. And the prayer went like this. I praise you, God, King of the universe, that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And it wasn't that, you know, there was something especially wrong with Jewish culture. There was the sense of ethnic superiority by all the cultures in that time, you know, Roman culture, Greek culture. Uh, There was patriarchy that was all over um, in that time. But I want us to know that in our earliest scriptures in the New Testament, Luke puts this account where as the church was being launched into Europe for the very first time, the first three people that came to faith to follow Jesus in Europe were a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. And Luke is writing this into our scriptures to make it clear that the heart of God is for people who are normally outsiders in this world to be brought in to the center. And that those who are normally marginalized in this world, God has a heart to embrace and to lift up and to um, seat in a place of honor in his kingdom. And so the church has not always lived up to this, but the presence of Acts 16 in our Bibles reminds us that this is the heart of God for his people, that we are called to never give up on ourselves or never give up or judge other people outside of our community that somehow God isn't going to be able to reach them or they're not included in the activity of God's redeeming love. But we are called to remember that God's grace and love and mercy are bigger than we can imagine. They blow our categories out of the water and that God is working for salvation and transformation for us and for this world. Let's pray. God, open our hearts to your word this day. Change us from the inside out because of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.